And that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening to The Freelancer's Show. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 150 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis... Hey. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I am Reuven Lerner. I'm not Charles Maxwood. Chuck is out this week attending a conference. But we are here this week to talk to you about proposals. Proposals to clients, how you write them, if you write them, and what things you should and should not do. So let's start with the first seemingly obvious question, which is, do you guys write proposals? No. You have to explain that. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, so, so exactly. <laughs> so, so people just come to your door and shower you with cash. Excellent. <laughs> well, I mean, going back, like the point of a proposal is to propose, like you know, some kind of business transaction, business agreement. And so, most of the time, I, I used to. I guess the first few years I did them, it was kind of an intermediate step between, hey, this person looks like you know, it'd be a good fit and a contract. So like, you know, we might have a sales call or two, maybe do some kind of like quick road mapping or whatever. And then it'd be like, Hey, I, Eric proposed we do this project based on X, Y, Z. And so most of the time the proposal is just a short document that outlines that it kind of gets stuff written down that we talked about over the phone. And pretty much a client would say either, no, let's change some of this or yes, that's good. Let's continue on. And then they'd get a contract that would basically say almost the exact same thing, both extra legal leaves around it. A big problem I had was, um, I think Jonathan's talked about this before, but my proposals would do like three options. Um, so it'd be like kind of a budget option, uh, a middle tier option, and then like a high value option. And, you know, so like based on what a client said they wanted to be like, you know, here's the three different scopes we could plan for. And um, I've done that even on hourly where it'd be like, we'll say 10 hours for the budget one, 20 for the middle one, and 50 for the top end one. And I, the problem was I was spending a lot of time actually making those proposals, figuring out the options and giving it to the client. And then probably 70% of the time, you know, more than half, the client would come back to me and want to change it. They'd either want like 15 hours, so like in between two options, or they would want something completely different. And so I would have to go back, rework the proposal, send it back to them, and then they might approve it. And what I ended up doing, I just, I said, you know what, I'm just going to cut this step out. Instead of writing a proposal, I'm just going to get on the phone with them, talk through kind of all the details, all the different, you know, hinge points, and get them to agree verbally that option two for 15 hours. And then I just go straight into a contract. And so I haven't done proposals in, I want to say three or four years. Two clients have really, really like had their hearts set on getting a proposal. And so I've actually taken my statement of work contract and just retitled it to proposal and sent it off to them. 
Um, one of them was because they have a bureaucracy and they have to have proposals for some reason. But I didn't go through the whole process like I did before. Let's say someone comes to you and says, Eric, we really want you to do some work for us for a two-week period. So you'll just say, well, here's my proposed statement of work, basically. Let's just sign this and we're off to the races. What I would do, a lot of times I'll try to say, hey, you want to sign the master services agreement. It kind of has the the base outline of how we are going to be engaged and also includes an NDA. A lot of my clients are really, they really want to keep their stuff uh, confidential. So sometimes if I can get that out of the way early on, I will. Um, that doesn't commit either of us to anything. That's just kind of like, like I said, it's the outlines of it. And then if they like, you know, we really want to work with you. I just say, okay, well, here's a statement of work proposing what you want. I've already signed. If it looks good to you, countersign, send a deposit, all that stuff. If it's not good, if there's something you want to change, then let me know. We can do some negotiation. I can change it and send you a revised copy. And my statement of work is the title page, which is just the title page. There's nothing on it, really. And then two to three pages, depending on how much detail that they give me. So it's really short, and it's not not that legalese type. Okay, so it's it sounds like you basically... I mean, this is what I did, I guess, when I was way, way back at the beginning of my consulting career. We would more or less hammer out what people wanted to do verbally, and then you're, I mean, at that point, I was not so formal about it, but you're then formalizing in the form of a contract as opposed to a proposal, which then gets turned into a contract. So you're you're shortening it and making it just much easier for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Like I said, because I was having to just, you know, double up my steps or spend a lot of time. And the way my master services agreement statement of work works is like they have enough of the legalese so that it becomes more binding than a proposal would, or, you know, it feels like it. And so it's a really, it's an easy way to do all the negotiation and get into a document that's the final document versus having like an intermediate one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jonathan, how about you? There's some similarities there. You know, we're selling different kinds of services. Before I get into that, I have a question actually for Eric. Before when you used to do proposals and then you'd have the kind of good, better, best options in the proposal, would you have already spoken to the prospect on the phone before that, or did you not have, is it usually like an email transaction leading up to that point? Um, I would almost always try to talk to him on the phone. Um, if they couldn't, like, I, I don't remember how it was, but I had one client in Switzerland, so time zone was just really hard to get on the phone at the exact same time. Um, in those cases, we would have a very long email chain. So, we, you know, it would, we would do all of the stuff we would talk about on the phone and kind of reach agreement, you know, quote, verbally, but through email. And so we'd kind of know going into like, this is what we would be doing. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's, there are a lot of similarities. I do agree that, well, first I do do proposals almost always. Every once in a while I'll get someone who just absolutely knows they want to work with me and they're just, their hair's on fire. They're freaking out. And it's not a huge project. It's like something that I can take care of quickly and I'll just like off the cuff a price on the phone and they'll PayPal me the money and we'll start immediately. But that's, that's an exception to the rule. Definitely. Because I feel like when I do that, I tend to leave money on the table. At least it feels that way. So even though it, I agree that it is difficult to do proposals, it takes a couple of hours at least, and then you might get a revision and you have to redo it. You know, So you end up devoting like four or five hours to the proposal process. For me, putting the options in, you know, if they're priced high, it makes it well worth the extra investment of time for me. But uh, it is a not fun part of the process. But for me, I mean, a proposal for me is like usually a title page, like a letter, like, hey, Joe, thanks for blah, blah. I'm really looking forward to working together. Please let me know if you have any questions or comments. Then there's uh, basically usually, you know, like a, maybe a half page to a page of statement of the problem as I understand it. Uh, and then there's a three options as to how I can help them with that. 
sort of a good, better, best model. So that the first, the lowest price version will be basically what they asked for, and then I'll have higher levels where they get more value out of it for one reason or another. So for, to put that into context, for me, it's usually I'm usually selling access to my advice. So the base level tier would usually be, you know, one project contact the person I'm having the discussion with, con- you know, I'll have a phone call with them every week or every other week. And there'll be some email exchange leading up to that, but no real communication, just like one way from them to me to collect agenda items. And then we'd have a, a weekly or biweekly meeting. And then a, a higher level up from that might be that I add in 24-7 text access or instant messaging access. So if they have questions that come up, because you never know what's going to come up, like, oh, one of our lead developer just quit. Can you reach out to your network and get someone or, you know, whatever. Something crazy can happen and they need immediate assistance. So that would be a level up. And then a level after that is, okay, not just the project contact, but he and maybe two direct reports can also contact me 24-7 and attend the, the weekly or biweekly meeting. So at each level, you give them more benefit. And it's the interesting thing about offering those options is that if they pick a lower one, it destroys any assumptions that they might have, tacit assumptions that they might have gotten some of that other stuff that we didn't actually talk about. So like if they, they get the, you know, if we talked about, yeah, we'll have a biweekly meeting and then they get the proposal and they see that option three allows other people in the meeting, then they're going to be like, oh, if I only buy option one, it's only me that can be in that meeting, which might not be something that we explicitly discussed. So for me, it's kind of like a nice way to do that. This is what the proposal includes, and this is what it doesn't include. It's almost like a tacit, you know, obviously it doesn't include those things because those are the higher priced option. So that's worked pretty well for me. I mean, five pages would be a long proposal for me. It's usually just the cover page, statement of the problem, three options, and a payment terms page with the sign here with which option you want. Now, do you go to a contract after proposal, or is that the final step? That's it. I don't go to a, there's no contract after that. I, okay, I, yeah, I, I try to avoid I, the uh, legal angle. And that's, I, that's what I've kind of seen. Is it Alan Weiss or whatever? He does that same thing where he says you can sign the proposal. So it's the final step for him is also a proposal versus for me, it's a contract. And like you said, it could just be because of the different services. Like I, I feel better having a contract because I'm dealing with, you know, actually sitting down and creating software and all that. Versus you're just doing advice. So it's a little bit of a different angle. And I think Alan Weiss does advice too. He doesn't do like, let's call it like the actual implementation of a lot of the stuff. Yeah, that's true. It's a different risk profile. When I did do software development, it was a little bit more, I would put in deliverables that we discussed, not because I would be pricing off of them, but just to communicate to them that I heard what they said, kind of. So it was like building a little trust that, yes, I listened to what you said. I'm repeating it back to you so that you trust that I listened and I'm paying attention. So if I was doing a software project quote, it would probably have some deliverables in it, but they wouldn't really be related to the price. And I would get a little bit more specific about accountabilities. So I'd add probably a dozen to two dozen bullet points about I'm going to do this and this and this, and you are responsible for the whatever, the data migration, or you are responsible for making sure the server is getting backed up and just to make sure that all that stuff's out on the table. So it would get a little bit longer for that kind of thing. But I still, the closest I ever got to a legal contract that I needed to show my lawyer was like an NDA or non-compete. Right. I'm, I'm sort of somewhere between the two of you and all this. So, I mean, most of my work recently has been doing training where, and, and the majority of that has been through a, a company, John Bryce, that they basically, they and I don't have a contract, but we have a long-term agreement where basically I show up, I do the training, and they pay me net plus 30. 
So the proposals are really either for training that I'm doing on my own, which is now ramping up more and more, and for software development projects. And in both cases, I typically send, I mean, I do send a proposal. It's typically like Jonathan, you know, I'll send email and I'll say, well, here's what you want. And if it's training, then it's much, much shorter. It's basically, here's the audience, here's what you want, here's a proposed syllabus. And typically the proposed syllabus is after we've already spoken about and hammered it out a bit. And after I send my email, then sometimes there's a little more back and forth, but not too much. And if it's software development, then it's, you know, here's your problem. And I'm still billing at this point on a daily basis. Uh, I haven't quite moved over to the, the value-based uh, version, but at least I feel like it's not a pure hourly basis anymore, which is a, a relief. Um, and I'll say I estimate it's going to take X number of days to do this, and X times Y is my rate, is what I expect it'll be. And I usually give a bit of a fudge factor there. So just recently I worked on something where I said, I think it'll take me between 8 and 10 days. And of course, your voice, Jonathan, was ringing in my ears as I build them for six days of work because that's all, <laughs> it took, all that's all it took me, and they still got a lot of value out of it. I was like, oh, oh, if only I'd listened, but oh well. Um, <laughs> but basically, I then send in, you know, send that email, and typically, then they say, okay, that's great. And if it's a big company, they send me a purchase order, which, if you've never dealt with big companies, folks, is basically like a big company promising, yes, we will pay. It's it's almost a contract. Um, we will pay eventually. Right, we'll pay eventually, where eventually is defined as soon or some, you know, never minus one. But they will pay, and I, I believe, I've never checked this, but I believe that a PO is also enforceable in court as something that they, you know, they have committed to paying. And then we sort of, you know, and, and then we're off to the races and we run and, you know, and, and we do our thing. Um, I did recently do a course for PayPal. Uh, where I did my standard sort of email thing, and we had spoken about it, and they knew exactly what we were doing, and I got email back from them saying, this was not in a real proposal format. So I had this long email thread with their head of training, and I kept saying to her, what is a proposal format? Like, what what do you think it looks like? And so finally, they they sent me a proposal that someone else had sent them for some other course, like, it had nothing to do with what I was doing, but at least that I could see what it looked like. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. It basically took what I did and put it into a table in Word, <laughs> and then had a nice uh, headline across the top saying proposal. So that's what I did, yeah. and everyone was happy. I had a client, uh, also one of the larger ones like that, do the same thing, where I was like, well, I don't do proposals. And so what they ended up did, they sent their in-house proposal slash contract and said, my client said, just just fill in these blanks right here with what, what you already sent us, and we'll move on. You know, And you could tell he didn't care about the bureaucracy, but like they had to do it in order to cut a PO and all that fun stuff. Yeah, that, I've had the same thing happen on occasion where someone, I'm just like, look, we could just keep going back and forth about this, or you could just send me what what you want, and I'll send it back to you. And that sometimes it's, you know, it's a head scratcher, but sometimes you have to deal with it. The huge companies, the most bureaucracy I ever had to deal with was Nokia, and it was insane. I mean, it was like proof of insurance and going through this whole rigmarole of this, uh, you know, third party PO service. And I mean, a lot of the big companies I work with require that you have errors and emissions insurance regard, like as a policy, even though it has almost no relevance to what I'm doing. But uh, I'm curious, have you guys ever gotten into like an actual legal situation with anybody where you had to like go to court or anything? Not yet. No, I wouldn't know. I, I cannot imagine a situation where it was worth doing that. I would just give them their money back. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess I came close sort of once where, and this, this is the cautionary tale I often tell people about, you know, vetting your clients and getting a contract signed first. 
But basically, I was on my way out the door to a meeting, and I got a call from someone saying, you know, hey, are you Reuven Lerner? Yes. Do you do Linux servers? At that point, I was doing a lot of sysadmin stuff as well. I said, sure. He said, well, I desperately need your help. You got to come help me. And it turns out he was located really close to where my other meeting was. So after that meeting, I went to his office. I got there, I guess, about 2 p.m. I returned home at 7 a.m., after having like pulled an all-nighter, working on his servers, everything was working great, kept working on his stuff for about two weeks. Me and I, at that point, I had a, a person or two on my staff. And then it, of course, came time to build them. And they then started hemming and hawing and everything. And, and, and finally, at that point, I had a business manager working for me. And she said, oh, they've said they're going to fax us something. Let's wait by the fax. And out of the fax comes a letter saying, Reuven Lerner is a charlatan and a fraud. He claimed he was going to fix our servers, but he made them worse. And he spent the whole night bickering with our CEO, telling him that, no, 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 we should not fix things. And basically, it was just a whole pack of lies. And they said, we now want to sue you. So you, how dare you try and collect money from us because we're going to sue you. And I went to a lawyer and he said, look, they're not going to sue you. You could sue them, but it's going to be costly and painful. And that was like a month before we went to the U.S. for me to start my PhD coursework. I just decided, forget it. Like, it's just it's just not worth it. Um Yeah. Just yeah, totally. that was that, that was like the, that was the closest that I ever came to suing someone. And probably if we had been not moving to the U.S. at that point, I wouldn't be surprised if we would have pursued it a little bit more. In part because in Israel, the loser pays in a, a civil suit, so there's less of a you know a threat there of me bankrupting myself going after him. But even so, like let's face it, you know, these contracts are there in part like for everyone's peace of mind, but. In almost no case can I imagine going after one of my one of my clients or them coming after me. We would just agree to be angry and never talk to each other again. Well, I'll say unless yeah. there's actual real damages. I mean, if you worked on their server, like we'll say Nokia's server, and like wiped out a production database with no backups or something like that, like they could come after you for damages. So it's even if you gave them money back, like it, that still might not be enough to appease the beast. And so, you know, that's you need to be careful. That's why I have such a very heavy contract because of the stuff that I do. I mean, I do server work for people. I do, you know, a lot of server development and there's, you know, chances of that weird stuff happening. Uh, mine even includes, I think it's either arbitration or mediation, which is like kind of a, a lightweight version of suing someone. It's like you're suing someone, but instead of being at court, you're like with a counselor or something. Um, and so you try to work it out that way. And so my contract's like, you know, we go for that route before we sue. And usually that's going to cost less than a full on legal suit. Yeah, I have insurance for that kind of stuff, but like, like I said, I, I can't imagine. It, it's just so hard to imagine this kind of stuff I'm doing these days that it would really crop up. But I do think that we should print up t-shirts that say Ruben Lerner is a charlatan and a fraud. I think that's, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> Make that the name of the training company. <laughs> you know, they say like, all publicity is good publicity. That, that yeah. might be an exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah, you should have framed that fax. Well, oh can't you use as a testimonial, like right on your homepage? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, like, it's easy for me to laugh at. I was shaking for days. I was so completely thrown, A, that someone makes some accusations against me, and B, that, like, just someone was so, 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 like, outrageously, like, willing to lie. Like, just, he did not care. He was willing to lie. I don't think I'd encountered that ever before. In general, but certainly not in my business life. It is pretty shocking. That's a shocking story. So there's something about proposals that I'm not sure that we explicitly stated, but I think we all do. I think we've all implied it, which is that the proposal itself is not a pitch. It's not a sales piece. 
it's something that that's something that you do on the phone, hopefully, or in person, hopefully, ahead of time. And then the document that you're sending, whatever you want to call it, is just a recapitulation of what you agreed to on the phone. So it should more or less be almost certainly approved. And if there are options in there, hopefully they pick a higher option than that you offered. But is that, do you guys think that's fair to say for your businesses? No, not, not always. I mean, in, in the best case, and I would say nowadays more than 50%, probably more than 80% of the time, that is true. But in many, many cases for me, you know, people say, well, you know, or at least in the past, people would say, send me a proposal and I've got a few other proposals to look through too. And of course I try to talk to them on the phone. I try to get more information. I try to make it, you know, then write the proposal so it's using their language and their business interests so that they are likely to choose me. But it's not always a done deal. And I would go even further than that, which is sometimes I'm trying to, you know, it's not just the people I was speaking to, but there might be someone in purchasing who needs to approve it too. And so they need to be convinced also. I feel like that I totally know where you're coming from. And it, and uh, that would be training type stuff or is it anything? I would say anything. But I, I just feel like a text document is a really hard way to close a deal. So if you are stressing yourself out to write a proposal that's going to convince someone who you've never even spoken to in purchasing that this is a good idea, it's going to be, that's where people get close rates, like 20% close rates because they're trying to do their sales inside of the document. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's, you know, 80% of the time you're not doing that because it's a hard way to do business. It's a lot of work writing up stuff that is, it's just a really hard way to make a sale. Well, it's basically an RFP transaction. I mean, the client's asking for bids and you're giving them a bid, which is like you said, a sales document and they're going to pick one out of there. It's not even like a sales conversation. It's just a, here's our problem. Tell us how you would solve it and how much it costs. And if it's good, we'll pick you. And in right. fact, sometimes it's not even if you're good. Sometimes it's like whoever's got the lowest hourly rate wins. Or right, the lowest absolutely. Which, which, of course, is like, I mean, that's a red flag to me that I, I'm never going to win it and I don't want to win it. I don't want to work with a guy who just wanted to hire the cheapest person. But there there were also, I mean, so recently I did a, there was a company that called me and they, they clearly like really, really wanted my work to help them actually, again, with Postgres. Like, lately, that's what people seem to call me for, training Python and Postgres, two divergent things. But anyway, so they called me and we had a great meeting. Everything was fantastic on the table. Everyone agreed what needed to be done. And I sent the proposal. And the head of the division that I'd spoken to said, okay, I'm sending this off to purchasing. And I don't know about in the U.S. or elsewhere, but it, but in Israel at least, the purchasing department has one goal in life, and this is what they're paid to do, to beat down the price of every proposal they get. So it didn't really matter that the, I don't know, division leader, VIP, whatever it was that I'd been speaking to, wanted me to work with him, that he approved the pricing, that he had the budget for it. What mattered was that the purchasing department need to prove to their bosses that the price would go down. And so they called me and said, will you reduce this price? And I said, no. He said, oh, you really don't want this project, do you? And then I said, well, tell me how much I need to go down. He said, 15%. I said, 10. He said, deal. <laughs> and that's, oh, God. like, that's, yeah. so that, that's how purchasing departments work, at least in Israel. And so, like, to some degree, it didn't matter what my proposal said, but to some degree, I needed to know this in my proposal so that I would pad it enough so that there was room for me to go down. Yeah, and say the experience I had with someone like that where their purchasing department called me, said, you know, can you give us a discount? Actually, I think it's over email. And I'm like, no. The agreement I had with, you know, my actual end clients says, here's the terms. We've negotiated. We've figured out the price. This is just for you to rubber stamp and get through to the system. And they've pushed back. 
And I went to my client and said, hey, I'm not going to be able to work with you because purchasing is killing it. And so he went above purchasing's head and basically said, no, we're working with this and basically pushed it through. That's what you need to have. If you don't have kind of like the, like an agreement or kind of an understanding with your actual client, the person you're going to serve, it's, you have to fight the entire organization to get your stuff going through. But if you have someone on your side who's actually going to help push it, um, in this case, they weren't a VP, but they're like VP level. Like they basically just like took the piece of paper and were about ready just to write a check outside of purchasing and then purchasing freaked out about it. So, you know, you can, if you work with the right people and have an agreement with the right people, you can kind of move around a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, I've done very similar things with, with real, it's hard to work with bureaucratic organizations, but a lot of times they have really big budgets so they're attractive clients because the, since I do value-based pricing, they get a lot of value out of what I'm doing. A smaller company wouldn't get as much value, so I can't charge them as much for the exact same thing. So there have been times when I've really, it feels kind of like a diva move where you're just like, no, I will let this project go rather than, I'm not getting into a debate with the purchasing department. Because the, the exact same thing, they hand you off and say, "Okay, we'll work it out with this person." You send the thing, like, "Oh well, we would never, we never pay that much for this." So the thing I always get is, "We never." I always ask for a hundred percent payment in advance, and they were like, "Oh, we always pay, <laughs> we always pay in arrears." And I'm like, "Well, I always charge, you know, I always demand payment up front, so we have an impasse." And they're just like, oh, "We, do, our system's not even set up to do that." And I'm like, "All right, so I go back to the contact who I've got the conceptual agreement with, the person who." knows that it's worth the money and explain the situation and sometimes they can push it through i can think of one example where i i went back to purchasing and i you know i i kept getting pushed to the purchasing guy and i said all right you can pay me in arrears but it's not going to be the same price i'm going to increase the price and he was like to what and i basically doubled it so you know if the price was eight eight thousand dollars in advance it was going to be sixteen thousand in arrears and he was like are you crazy and i'm like look you know, they were hiring me to do a keynote presentation at an internal, like a trade show they were doing. And I was like, look, I have to do a whole bunch of preparation in advance of this. One of the things that uh, is included in my fee is my own travel and accommodations arrangements. I'm going to be devoting a lot of time to this. And you would be surprised how many times people cancel at the last minute. And I'm not letting that happen. You are either paying me in advance a non-refundable $8,000 or... I'll take on the risk of you canceling at the last minute and you'll pay me $16,000 before I walk on stage on, you know, there. And they paid me the 8,000 in advance. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always find it somewhere between amusing and horrifying that people will say with a straight face, well, like the system won't allow for it or we have rules for doing X, Y, Z. Like rules can be gotten around. It doesn't mean that they will. And I mean, I, I, I had an impasse, uh, I guess it was last year or two years ago with the HP division in Israel where so someone had messed up, things had fallen between the cracks, and just in terms of the billing for me, I ended up getting paid months and months and months after I should have been through no one's specific fault. But basically, I kept saying, like, someone must be able to approve faster payment. They were like, well, maybe, but it's not us. And there was such bureaucratic finger pointing. At a certain point, they just wore me down, and there was a limit as to how much I was willing to, you know, time I was willing to spend on it. But you're right. Like, if you find the right person, they can put in the system and they can change it. Because it can't be that the programmers made it impossible to pay someone in advance. Well, and I think yeah. in my case, I'm trying to remember the details, but it was, I think my client even threatened to pay me out of his expense account and submit reimbursements every week and just cause <laughs> a ton of paperwork for them. And I think that kind of got their attention enough that, you know, this was going to get paid for whether out of the right account or the wrong account, but it was going to get paid for. That's awesome. 
you know, that's, it's, I mean, you, if you have an advocate like that internally, that's gold. So, so I'm curious in writing your proposals, do you guys recycle text, recycle formats or anything, or do you write it from scratch each time? Recycle or template more than recycling. Yeah. I almost always pick up the last similar one and then just edit it. I should probably do that. I mean, I, I tend to just sort of write it from scratch each time in part because I sort of know what I want to say and in part because often these proposals are very different one from the other. For That's that, what I, did is I, I'd say I have my attorney when he created kind of the template. There's like a bunch of different clauses based on like how the situation is. And so it's like, it's in red. It's like, if in this situation, use this. If it's this other one, use this. The only part that's kind of custom is like, you know, what problems the client has, what deliverables there are, and then, you know, what the actual payment or like schedule, like calendaring type stuff would be. And that's just, you know, that's part of the agreement. Yeah, I, I found that if you are always doing proposals from scratch because they're so different, it means that your positioning is too vague and you're, you're doing too many different kinds of jobs. Hmm. Uh, Interesting point. Yeah, I still have a few different things that I do. There's like speaking engagements, which sometimes have a particular kind of thing. And then I'll do monthly retainers that have a very specific kind of thing that I can repurpose a lot of. And then there's very short one-off engagements where it's like... Uh, a short-term intervention, and those are usually from scratch. Those are much more unique. Yeah, and I'm working on some kind of productized consulting services, and like the goal of that is any kind of agreement or you know what you would call proposals, just like a click-through, like you know I agree to the terms of services, and so it's actually standard for every client, and you know the service is so standardized that it would work like that. I don't have to actually create it and send it off, and I might like print it out for like the one or two cases where they want something different or like you know a a higher end version or something. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's almost the di- that right there is the difference between ad hoc consulting and a productized consulting service, where it's like you don't have to do a proposal really. It's like it's there. It's like a it described item. Here's the price. You either pick it or you don't pick it, and that's it. Right. It's it's funny. All the talk that we've done over the you know, months about productized consulting, it finally dawned on me. I am doing productized consulting with my courses. Right, like I say, here's a course, here's how long it is. I just need to sort of advertise it as such on my site so people take it or don't take it. But, right, for those, the, the proposal is, perhaps I'm writing it anew each time, but it's really short and it's, it's. I mean, I can almost do it in my sleep at this point because I know what I'm going to say. You know, here's the course, here's the syllabus, let me know if you want to change things, here's the pricing, go for it. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I have done training classes in the past that it's, it feels very productized to me. It's like, here's the, here's what I'm going to cover. Here's the price and click here to pay. Are there any things that are foolish to put in a proposal or that someone should never put in a proposal that can either kill a deal or just weaken your position now or in the future with a client? In terms of weakening the position, I, that, that's why I never change the price once I give it. Once I quote a price, I never change it. I'll redo the proposal and do a different one with a different price, but I will never give somebody a discount because then you're just setting, you know, you're basically saying to the customer, every time I send you a proposal, you should haggle with me. So, so you I, mean your price won't change for the value you're providing or like they can downgrade the value and have a lower price? They can do that. Like I can send a proposal and they could say, you know what, none of these options are acceptable. We we only want to pay, you know, 80% of the lowest option. So say, all right, I'll create a new proposal with a different set of options or a single option that is more in line with what your budget is. But I will never say, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, because my goal with every project is to create a long-term customer. So I want them to be super happy, but I also want me to be super happy. So if we start off on that foot where 
they know that they should push back on every price, then I've just created like a ton more work for everybody, not just me. Then, you know, like, like Ruben before saying, oh, you know, I have to know to pad my invoice. That's just like, I don't have time for that mentally. I don't have, it's not time, but it's, me, it's like emotional energy that I don't, I, I just don't have. So the price is a price. I will negotiate. I'm not a jerk, but I will negotiate over terms. So like I asked for $10,000, 100% in advance. You're like, ah, we can't really come up with all that in advance. And I'll say, okay, how about, you know, we can do 50 up front and 50 in 30 days. Like, I, I will go back and forth. I just will not change that dollar figure because the dollar figure, there's something psychological about it that I, I just will not change. Right. And I think one client I just signed today, it looks like she came back with like, you know, hey, there's a couple of terms that are, aren't clear or whatever, you know, most along the lines of like NDA and like subcontractor type stuff. And I'm like, well, it's in there, but I'll, I'll, I'll redo, in this case, it was the contract. I'll redo the contract and give it back to you. But yeah, the price stayed the same. There's no, like, I'm not redoing it to give her a discount. It's just to make it clear for her and her attorney that this is exactly how it would behave if we went to court or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I can't well, think a- of anything else that, like, you don't ever want to put in your proposal. And it could be the style we're doing. I mean, these aren't, like, bid proposals. These are basically just summarizing what agreement we think we have. The biggest problems I've ever seen is where I'd have a sales conversation with someone. We would hammer out all the details. I'd write down either what we said or what I thought I heard because, you know, the perception bias, but I'll write yeah. all that down and then give it to them. And they'll be like, well, actually, we didn't agree to that. We want something different. Um, so it's not so much a red flag, but it's more of like shining a light on here's what I think all the details are. And they would be like, that's actually not it. But most of the time, that's just like that's very minor negotiations back and forth. And it's better to do that up front than it is in the middle of the project when, you know, they're expecting something different. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the hidden thing is in here is that sales conversation is everything. The proposal is not that big a deal. I mean, there's some, there's, I mean, there, there's a format to it. There's a framework for it, I think, but it'd be easy to download from someone's site. Like, oh, here's a good format for like a, a proposal and just fill it in. The tricky part is having the conversation that will create the conceptual agreement with the buyer. Well, first of all, getting to the buyer, that's a hard part. Hopefully they came to you, but if a gatekeeper came to you, then you had to have to try, try and get around them and get to the person who actually can write the check. And then having a conversation with them that's not about deliverables, it's more about why they want the project, why now, why me. And I probably said this in previous episodes, but it's kind of a mantra for me. I essentially try and talk the client out of hiring me and make them convince me that I'm a good fit. And then I'll be like, all right, because yeah. I, you know, I don't want to deliver something awesome. It, in my, like, I do like all this work and do this awesome thing for them, and then be like, ah, it didn't really move the needle for us. Like, I want, I don't want that to happen. That's a long-term client for me. If I'm going to put all this effort into a sales cycle, I want it to turn into a long-term client. I want them to keep on hiring me for like two, three, four years. So if I can make sure ahead of time what their goals are, why they want this training class or why they want this four-hour strategy session. What's the goal? Why do they want this retreat? I might say, you don't need a retreat. You need a new policy, you know, or you're incentivizing your directors to compete with each other. Like the problem isn't, I'm not going to come in and solve this problem. You have to change the way your incentives are structured or whatever. If you can do that on that call, and usually for me it's like one call, maybe two, that's your that's your only shot at it. If you can make that happen and make the light bulb go on in the buyer's mind, then the proposal is just like, 
no big deal. You just write down what you said. And, and like Eric said, sometimes there's a disconnect there, but hopefully not. But the, the whole art to the whole thing is the phone call or, you know, in-person meeting. Right. I, I mean, I, I agree that that's a total, total game changer for me. If I can go and talk to them. I mean, just today I got a call from someone who said, you know, I'm interested in, you know, having your services. I said, well, you know, let's get together and meet. And that's like, when we have that meeting, what a week and a half we scheduled it from now. A, I'm going to understand much more about them and what they're interested in doing and whether I'm a good fit for them. But they're also going to see me as, as more of a person, not just, Oh, here's a guy who knows the technology and has sent us a price quote. And I told them I'm interested in a long-term relationship. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're interested in that too. So I think it's to everyone's benefit to, to have that meeting. And after you have that meeting, I mean, what you guys have been saying is totally right. Then the proposal should just be a done deal. Then everyone's happy with it. And it's just formalizing what you've talked about. I mean, you could almost think of a proposal just as meeting notes, you know, like someone's mm-hmm. taking notes at the meeting. It's just more, yeah. it's proposal has a better weight to it than, Hey, exactly. here's, here's what we talked about. I like that. Now, I, I think before the call I'd asked and got the answer to it, but neither of you guys use this like bid sketch or, or anything else like that for doing your proposals, right? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are, of course, don't do proposals. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a, a, a SaaS application for doing bids and I don't use it either. I just know that there's some people who rave about it. So I guess none of us, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means we don't know about it or don't know much about it. Yeah. I think Curtis, I mean, I'm probably speaking for him now, but I think Curtis used to use bid sketch or a similar, similar system, but I think he was doing kind of like what you're doing, Jonathan, where the proposal is like pretty much the contract. It's like the final negotiation piece. And so he used it for more of subbing in and out terms than actually like, you know, sending bids out for someone. Right. My, my impression is bid sketch also gives you like you can have, and there might be other, other alternatives to it as well. It's just the one that, I mean, I looked at it, I guess about a month or two ago and decided not to use it. But the idea is that you have, you know, chunks of text you can sort of pull in for boilerplate. And there's a nice feature there where you know if they've read it and they can just sort of sign it and agree to it online. Oh, here, Eric just wrote that. Was it, was it Nusi? N-U-S-I-I. Yeah, and uh, I think some of them will even like let you take credit cards and, you know, all that stuff too. So like it's not just, you know, cranking out a document. It has a mm-hmm. bit of like integration with, you know, receivable and that sort of thing. But yeah, for me, I just, I use two open office templates that I just make a new template, edit the parts out. Like I said, you know, my, my, my attorney gave me a lot of those, you know, sections if I want to do it as an open source project or as, you know, client gets all the rights or whatever and fill in a little bit, print it to a PDF and send it over to him. Yeah. I was going to say, you, I, I hope you don't actually send open office documents to your clients. I mean, maybe your clients would be willing to read them, but none of mine would know what to do with them. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm looking at, I know of Nathan and like a proposal is a little, you know, it's, it's not fun. It's not, it's not fun to type up, but it's not a anywhere near a bottleneck for me. So it doesn't feel like something I need to streamline compared to things like marketing automation or onboarding, something like that. So it, it seems like, uh, like the stuff that's farther up at the wide end of the funnel is the stuff that I'm more interested in automating and the stuff way down at the bottom of the funnel, I, I'm, perfectly happy to be very high touch with. Well, I think like, you, like you're saying, it's difference in businesses, difference in services. Like BidSketch right now on their homepage, which it might change, they have a testimonial of cut my proposal time from three hours to 45 minutes. Like even on the, the most dreadful proposals, I might have spent an hour and that was an hour to do it and send it off. You know, it might be people are referring to proposals like that BidSketch is targeting as like a higher volume or like I was saying, like a, a way to get bids, a way to get, you know, start a sales conversation versus for all of us here, it seems like our proposals are 
deeper in the funnel. It's more of just, you know, the final agreement. So even if it took us three hours, we'd be doing, you know, very few of those. So it's worth the time. Yeah, exactly. If I was cranking out tons of proposals, I would probably just productize the common, like the the center of the Venn diagram of those and and just sell it at a fixed price and have people self-select whether or not the value is appropriate to them. So then that not only cuts out the proposal process, but the phone call too. Yeah, true. I think we're closing in on the end of our time. Any more ideas, suggestions regarding proposals, guys? Right, One thing that's oh, always it's... been really big is really try to drill in like and understand why your client needs it. Uh, Jonathan talked about it a, a little bit ago, but that for me, and I only do like two or three sentences on that in mind. A lot of my clients will come back and say like, yeah, you actually really captured what this is about. You understand this. And it's a huge way to kind of start on a really good foot as far as trust wise. And so if you can get that from, you know, some of the initial emails or the sales conversation, like that's going to help you. Um, and that's actually when I didn't get that. That's when my proposals or my statement of works would take longer to write because I'd be trying to like reverse engineer and try to figure out what they actually, what their problem was. And it would always come across a lot weaker than it actually really was. Plus one. Right. Right. At the, at the end of the day, they care about their business. I mean, right. And if, if you're talking about all sorts of other stuff, well, they're not going to be as interested. All right. Let's go to picks. Jonathan, any picks for this week? Books are oh, picks, yes. right? What is this quaint technology you speak of? <laughs> well, audiobook, of course. <laughs> oh, 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 sure. <laughs> this particular title is available in print and audiobook and ebook, as a matter of fact. And it is called Getting More, subtitle How to Negotiate to Achieve Your Goals in the Real World. And it probably comes across from that title and subtitle. It sounds a little smarmy and salesy, but it is probably it might be the best. Okay, that's. I, I was going to say one of the best business books I've ever read, but it's bigger than a business book. And it's about putting yourself in the shoes of the other person that you're negotiating with. And when I say other person, you know, that's, you know, we're talking about proposals and that's certainly one thing, but it, it's everything from trying to pick a movie to go to with your significant other or getting your kids to clean their room or whatever. We're negotiating all the time. And this is a huge book written by a guy who has advised on negotiation to the United Nations in the Middle East. And he is like, it's great. I can't say enough about it. It's a fabulous book, and it's it's on my my mentoring reading list, a must-read for everybody. Just that one for me this week. Excellent. Eric, any picks from you for this week? Yeah, so I got a book. It's available in nine different formats, including a preloaded digital audio player, which I have no idea what it is. But it's by Seth Godin. It's a very short one called The Dip. I've actually read it multiple times. I just finished it again. It's so good. I actually put it in my kind of to-do list to actually reread every quarter. It's basically teaches you about like when you're working on something, when you should kind of stick through it, go through the hard times and when you should quit things. And it's not just permission to quit, but it actually is kind of like, you know, helps you understand like, can you be the best in the world of this? Should you continue? And I might have even picked it in the past. It's that good. Uh, second pick, I got this a little while ago, but I, they just like released a new version of kind of fixing bugs. It's called a workflow. It's a iOS app that basically does automation. Um, so if you've ever used what is an automator on the Mac, it's very similar to that. The reason I have it is I actually use a lot of stuff to kind of send myself notes or add to my to-do list, which is just a text file. This actually like 
takes that to to a new extreme. Instead of like emailing myself and then when I get on the laptop I actually do it, I have a button here where I can hit it and it will take the current web page that I'm on in Safari, trim out stuff, get the title, add it to my to-do list with a priority of one or whatever. Um, and I have stuff to like, oh, I want to put this in social media, but I don't want to just tweet it out. I want to actually save it so I have a bookmark of it. I have an action for that. I have something for um, when I'm collecting links for freelance chi, I can hit this and it adds it to a queue that I can kind of review later. Um, it's pretty neat. They, there's a lot of recipes you can kind of build, but they give you a lot of kind of the components you can do. So you can kind of assemble it however you want. This latest version is a lot better. It actually lets you sync it a bit between multiple devices, which was the thing I was waiting on. Once again, it's called the workflow and I'll have the link in the show notes. Excellent. And I've got, I would argue, one and a half picks for this week. I decided I was just going crazy trying to schedule things with people. They would call me, we would go back and forth, we would talk about it, and trying to find mutually agreeable times were just crazy. And I remembered that we discussed perhaps months ago on the show different tools, or there had been picks for different tools. And uh, Eric had chosen one, and uh, Curtis was then on the show had uh, chosen one as well. I've decided to go for now with uh, You Can Book Me, which is youcanbook.me. I'll have them in the show notes. And I already, in the first two weeks of using it, it has been just so incredibly... What what a relief. I've basically said to, I think, five, ten people already, go to my calendar, book time with me whenever you want. And I set it up in advance. There was a little bit of advance uh, work that needed to be done there to tell it when I was and was not available, but it was fantastic. Uh, so I've been using that for about two weeks. Oh, I see. Eric said that he switched to Curtis's to Calendly. My, my, my half pick is to say that after being so thrilled with You Can Book Me and its results, I decided to also look at Calendly, and it actually looks like it's more configurable. So I may be switching to that in the coming weeks as well which is just a matter of giving people a different URL because at the end of the day, it's it's syncing to your Google Calendar. So it's just different UI on the front end to the same back end that syncs to your phone, your computer, your whatnot. But whatever it is, uh, if you're trying to schedule meetings with people and you're having email back and forth about when you're available, when they're available, it's really a huge, huge time saver. So I uh, strongly recommend using something, if not one of the things that I mentioned. Anyway, I guess we've come to the end of the show. So thanks, Eric and Jonathan, and we'll be back next week with another exciting episode of The Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at MadGlory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 